A thing that looks like a police box standing in a junkyard. It can move anywhere. Maven, concentrate on sin. Give priority to the detectors and the navigation systems. There is a corridor. And the corridor is time. It surrounds all things. On display, I eventually had to go down to the cellar. That's the display department. With a torch. The lights are probably gone. So had the stairs. You are just number six. I am not a number. I am a person. Welcome to British Invaders, episode 418. This is the podcast all about British science fiction television. And this time we are continuing our discussion about Lost in Austin. This is Brian from Canada. And this is Eamon from England. Hello. We are talking about this 2008 ITV series that is somewhat based on Pride and Prejudice, but meddles with it by introducing a devoted fan, this character Amanda Price, from modern-day London in 2008 when the series was made being sent back into the novel itself and ending up changing quite a few things, even though she doesn't always intend to. And this was done as four 45-minute episodes for ITV back in 2008. And as you say, she's changing things in the past. Can she get things back on track? And... What is happening to the novel's heroine, Miss Elizabeth Bennet, who is in modern-day London? What's she up to? We'll perhaps find out a little about that later on. Yeah, so Amanda is, of course taking the place of Elizabeth Bennet, but also not taking the place of Elizabeth Bennet. Yes, because as we said last time, she's enjoying initially what she thinks is either a dream or a hallucination that has landed her in the world of her favourite novel. But as we've said, she soon discovers that her presence is distorting the events that she recalls so vividly from Pride and Prejudice. Things aren't quite going as the way they're supposed to. That's right. And characters who end up happy in the books end up in much more unhappy situations with different marriages happening and so on. And without Elizabeth Bennet there, several characters are taking romantic interest in Amanda Price instead. And of course, we get things with Amanda and the proud and arrogant Mr. Darcy himself. And at a certain point, Miss Price wants to get things back on track and wants to go back home to London in the present day. So we get all of that playing out as well. And amongst all these unintended consequences, we find out some very interesting things about characters that we think we know well from the book. In particular, the book, one of the book's sort of like leading villains, Mr. Wickham. In this version, is he as bad as Jane Austen portrayed him or is there more to that story? And what of Mrs. Bennet, whose sort of early panic-driven sort of shrieks are slowly replaced by this stronger, calmer, more determined mother and sort of matriarch of the household. I have to say, partly this is due to Alex Kingston's performance in this role, which we remember Alison Steadman playing in the 1995 version, Brenda Blethyn on the film version. But Alex Kingston bringing something to this role and this character that's quite remarkable. Yes, and it is there in the writing, but she certainly highlights it very well, which I imagine is why she was cast in the role. And yeah, both Hugh Bonneville and Kingston are moving their characters towards sort of more happier married life than we had in the source material. 
So they're definitely trying to show these characters to be a little bit different in this version of things rather than what we had in Jane Austen's novel from 1813. Yes, different, perhaps reflects some of our modern sensibilities. Certainly very interesting. So we should talk a little bit about genre and the idea of a time slip, which is a term we like to use that has certain traditions about a character, the protagonist of a story being sent back in time, usually through some sort of mysterious portal that usually only allows them to go back and forward some of the time and doesn't work for everyone. And sometimes they have to complete whatever their task or mission is for the story to be completed to be allowed to go back home again. And some of those traditions are showing up here. So even though there's the fictional element of it being a novel rather than a piece of history, some of those ideas are certainly reminiscent of the time slip idea. They are indeed. We seem to be in time slip territory for us. As we say, Brian, a concept we've come back to on many an occasion. But of course, we've got this strange fictional element, as in that we've time slipped in a fiction into another fiction, which I guess leads us to our next section, exploring this a bit more. Yes, absolutely. And having fictional works sort of dip into other fictional works in different ways is not new to Lost in Austin. It's something it does by putting this devoted fan into the world they love. But it's something that we have seen in other places and we get with other things diving into literature as well. Yes, we've got literature. We've got almost a metatextual commentary on this literature that we all love. We're going to mention a few examples that occurred to us. And it allows for some metatextual, i.e. taking us outside of the text, but then commenting on it, commentary of this Pride and Prejudice and the, the literature. And it occurred to me, just because of the connection with Pride and Prejudice, we've got Helen Fielding's Bridget Jones's Diary, which has a similar playful approach to the source material, even in the film versions, casting Colin Firth, no less, as Darcy, in this sort of like continuing homage to one of the most famous interpretations of that part. Yes, and it is something that we see from a variety of places. Normally, it is only going to happen with public domain works being commented on for copyright reasons and so on. The British science fiction writer Brian Aldous sent a time traveler back to 1818 to interact with fictional characters in Frankenstein Unbound. So you have things like this where you have things of that type. I'm also going to mention Jasper Ford. I haven't read any of his novels which play with sort of detective fiction set in Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, but they exist. The one I'm most familiar with, of course, would be the comic books, Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill's famous The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which plays with crossovers between several extremely famous characters from Victorian literature. And in Doctor Who, of course, we have Doctor Who's adventures sort of interacting with sort of fictional characters in 
the land of fiction in the mind robber series brian absolutely and this is the one that i think of most this is a second doctor patrick crowton story from the late 60s where they enter this land of fiction and interact with lots of fictional characters and it really plays with this idea of fictional characters Eamon, that included Bernard Horsfall playing Gulliver from Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. Oh, right. Okay. One of Horsfall's several appearances in Doctor Who, I'm guessing. Yes, indeed. So, yeah, certainly some fun stuff happening there. And the concept of a story within a story has been used by many different characters and, you know, goes back to, you know, the play within a play in Shakespeare and so on. But you have a lot of these different sorts of things that have been done in the past. Yes. I mean, two examples that again jumped out to me, the play Six Characters in Search of an Author by the Italian playwright Luigi Pirandello. And I thought Stephen King has done this several times, I think, this idea of an author almost haunted by their own creations. I think most notably his novel The Dark Half, which also became a film as well, as most of Stephen King's books do. But that certainly explored it. Those are the ones I could think of, Brian, but it's an interesting idea, fiction where characters appear in other fictions. Yeah, the idea of a play within a play from Shakespeare's Hamlet was what occurred to me for that. But more specifically, these things with works of fiction that dabble with other works of fiction and bringing things in, that's sort of an interesting one too. And please let us know what other ones that did interesting things with that are out there that we haven't mentioned. Yeah, I'm fascinated. I'm sure I'm missing some obvious ones and uh, I'd like people to let me know characters who end up trapped or uh, interacting with famous fictional characters. Yes, absolutely. So we should get into some of our own views about this show more than we already have. So, Eamon, what did you like about Lost in Austin? Well, you certainly can't fault, I think, the production values for this show. It looks great. It sounds great. Sets, locations, beautiful costumes for the Regency period... It does look and sound extremely good, I think, Brian. What did you make of the overall feel of the production? Oh, it's beautiful. It's a lavish production. It's well-directed. It looks like, you know, a really solid Jane Austen adaptation production. It does not look like it's a low-budget production or anything like that. It, it looks great. I really enjoyed that. I'll also mention the cast, who I think were, were all first rate. They sort of divide into categories because you have the modern day cast with Jemima Roper playing Amanda Price and a few other characters who we see in London. And all of them are very good and true to what they should be. And then we have all of these Jane Austen characters in the 1813 world. And they were all very good too. And they all represented those characters and the twists on those characters very well. And it was all, you know, good performances. So I enjoyed that a lot too. Any particular standouts for you in the cast, Brian? Oh, good question. 
I think Jemima Roper is one and Alex Kingston is one. Yes, Alex Kingston having a great time and really bringing something to the part of Mrs. Bennett. Helped by the writing, of course. But yeah, I found that really one of the interesting aspects of the show, how her character develops over the four episodes. And Jemima Roper sort of has a lot of things to do in this. You know, she is our representation of ourselves inserted into Pride and Prejudice. And she is also the agent of change for that and has to interact with everyone on those terms. So it's a lot on her plate as an actor and she does it very well. Indeed, yes. I'm going to just shout out Lindsay Duncan having a fabulous time as the villainous Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Again, it's one of those great roles that turns up whenever, you know, an actress can really get their teeth into this rather obnoxious character. And Lindsay Duncan, what a presence on screen. So that I really uh, enjoyed that as well. What about the writing of the show, Brian? Well, it's interesting. I think some of the writing was done very well. I think the twists on the characters and some of the events in, in Pride and Prejudice, I thought that was all cleverly handled and quite well done with the writing. It's a lot of fun. And I, I did like the way that Guy Andrews has sort of inflected some modern sensibilities onto Pride and Prejudice and given us some character developments that uh, are unexpected but very interesting. Yeah, so I think I want to branch into a little more of the negatives, but into something that I saw in this, which is about how many things this series was trying to do. And I counted four different things which is a lot, and that became something of an issue for me. One is that it was trying to adapt Pride and Prejudice. And this is something they talked about in the making of special on the DVD. That was something they were trying to do. Also highlighted in the that making of, they were doing a sort of wish fulfillment for young straight women of getting to go into the world of Pride and Prejudice and meet Mr. Darcy and have a romantic relationship or a potential romantic relationship with Mr. Darcy. So those were a couple things it was trying to do, but it was also doing a sort of fish out of water story for Amanda Price where she is struggling with all of these 1813 things and is sort of reacting to seeing the different characters and how they're just like she expected or even more fitting in with what she expected or surprised her and so on. But those reactions were sort of part of that fish-out-of-water story. And finally, it was also sort of doing a bit of a critique of the novel and the presentation of this 1813 world as a sort of desirable thing and sort of pointing out that maybe some things were more complicated than that and in particular that if you actually met Mr. Darcy maybe he wouldn't be quite what we think of from from the novel. That's a lot for me to say about this, but I felt it was trying to do an awful lot there. And it's unusual, as you say, Brian, that's a lot of plates for this uh, series to be spinning. It's also unusual for us to be dealing with a romantic comedy 
We haven't talked about that too much in the history of British Invaders. Did you find that this series also satisfied our sort of genre credentials? Did you feel that it was approaching fantasy or science fiction territory? Oh, very much so, because you get that fish-out-of-water story, which is very sort of traditional time travel, and the character having to explain herself from where where she came, so it fits into some time travel ideas, very much so. And later in the story, we get Elizabeth Bennet in present-day London, and her fish-out-of-water story which is quite neat and cleverly done as well. And we get the idea about the decisions about who stays in which time frame and who decides to go back and when. So, yes, I would say it fits in as a genre show very much so. Did you want a bit more of Gemma Arterton as Elizabeth Bennett in 2008 London? Because I did. Yes, absolutely. And it would have been nice just to maybe see a bit more of her in the past at the beginning or something like that, too. But yes, it would have been nice to see a bit more of that as well. You've mentioned that meeting Mr. Darcy might not be all that fans of the novel wanted because... I have to say that Mr. Darcy in this version, he's got enormous sort of riding boots to fill coming after like people like Laurence Olivier and Colin Firth. Elliot Cowan was one of my slight disappointments about this series. He just seemed mostly grumpy throughout it to me. Yeah, that that's true. But we also get some moments with Amanda Price where she criticizes him for doing things in his own interest and calling them principled and so on. And they make a case there that Mr. Darcy as an actual person would not be such a great romantic, you know, romantic interest. You would not actually want to be with him. And this was sort of something they were playing with there, was to say that some of these things that were portrayed as being very positive in 1813, from a present-day point of view, are maybe not so great. And that was sort of interesting. It was an interesting take on things, and it's highlighted with that interaction between Amanda Price and Mr. Darcy, but comes up in a few other places as well. The problem, and this is sort of my biggest issue with this, is that some of those things it's trying to do work against each other and cause it to not work as well for me. And the fact that they were doing the critique and also trying to make it be an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice in a way. Those two things worked against each other. And you get this idea of Amanda Price really taking issue with Mr. Darcy. And this is sort of the later in the book version of Mr. Darcy, where, you know, we're meant to see him as more as a good person we see that and it does some interesting things but because they're adapting she has to sort of put that aside and fall and fall in love with him anyway and you get things like that where just because it's trying to do so many things it doesn't work as well because they're working against each other oh that's very interesting uh okay challenges there I'm going to say that I liked the homages, the references, the in-jokes about the 1995 BBC version of Pride and Prejudice, the dripping wet Mr. Darcy, the ringtone on the phone, even the sort of nod in the theme music to Carl Davis's original score there. 
all of that stuff I quite enjoyed actually, Brian, because I was such you know. I have to remember the 1995 version was a real cultural phenomenon at the time here in the UK and everybody, including myself, was watching it. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, all of those nods and those kinds of things, those were done very well. And I, I did enjoy those. And they mention Colin Firth by name and even sort of show a photo on a webpage in present day London. You know, they make those references specifically a number of times and yeah all all of those little references and the little things they have fun with with this with changing the characters and making references to different things those are all done really well and i love seeing what elizabeth bennett makes of modern day london and in the end she actually quite likes it and adapts to it quite well and yeah, a lot of those things were really nice. There's definitely a lot of things that were charming and were really well done in this. Okay, interesting stuff. And uh, yeah, echoes from the from modern London going back to the past and vice versa. Yeah, great stuff and some great performances in there along the way as well. Definitely, yes. So shall we recommend this or not to our audience, uh, Brian? Let's see, see whether or not we're going to recommend that they try and watch Lost in Austin if they've not seen it before. How would you like to start us off? So I am going to start us off by saying there are some lovely, charming things in this, but on the whole, it did not work for me and did not work for me as something that spanned uh, four episodes in a few hours. So for my part, no, I will not recommend this. Okay. Well, strangely enough, this series won me over. I was thought I was done with Pride and Prejudice after the 1995 BBC version and the, the more recent big screen version with Kira Knightley. I thought I'd had enough of Elizabeth Bennett and Mr Darcy, but actually this series, which I hadn't seen in 2008, sort of won me over over the four episodes. And I think particularly... Some of the background characters being fleshed out and developing more really impressed me. So I'm actually going to say, because here in Region 2, it's so easy to watch if you've got the BritBox subscription, I would say give it a watch, give it a go. Actually, I think it's quite fun. And then, although I was surprised that it turned up on our list, a bit puzzled by it, I'm actually, <laughs> I quite enjoyed it, Brian. And I'm going to say, yes, give it a go. Okay, very good. And please let us know if you agree with Eamon or if you agree with me or if you think we're both right or if you think we're both wrong. Yes, particularly if you watched it in 2008 or if you watched it more recently because of our review, do please get in touch and tell us what you think. Absolutely. So, in summary, Lost in Austin introduces us to Amanda Price, who is a young woman in modern-day London living a somewhat humdrum life and is a big fan of Jane Austen's novels, in particular Pride and Prejudice. And she finds a portal of sorts in her bathroom that takes her back into 1813 and not into the real 1813, but into the world of Pride and Prejudice. And Elizabeth Bennett from Pride and Prejudice 
does the reverse and comes to 2008 London and they get to switch places for a while and we get to see much of the story of Pride and Prejudice but with some twists where we learn things we didn't know about some of the characters and also have some characters ending up in different situations than we expected or ending up in different situations and then coming back to things that are more like what we saw all leading up to discovering what Elizabeth Bennet has been doing in London and learning about where these two characters have gone with this experience and finding out what they will decide to do in the end. Interesting stuff. Somewhat of an oddity for us here on British Invaders, but as ever, as we've said, please let us know what your thoughts were. Absolutely. And come back and join us next time. We are returning to the magical animated worlds of small films productions. We are looking at Ivor the Engine, the colour episodes from the BBC in the mid-1970s, but also talking about the original black and white version, which started on ITV way back in 1958. And we've got some fun stuff to talk about next time, Brian. Yes, absolutely. So until then, you can find all of our episodes, well over 400 of them now, at BritishInvaders.com. Or if you search for British Invaders on Facebook, you can find us there as well. And you can find us on Twitter. We are at BritInvadersPod. So please join in on some of the conversations and feel free to talk to us on the socials. Please do. Also, British Invaders is a proud member of the Voice of Geeks Network. You can find podcasts and gaming content all there at vognetwork.com. Drop by and tell them Brian and Eamon said hello. Yes, please do. So thank you for listening. And this is Brian from Canada signing off. Yes, until next time, Eamon in England also signing off. <laughs>